What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Lions of Liberty, friends, fans, my family. I'm so glad to be back here with you this Monday. And uh, maybe it hasn't seemed like it's been so long for you guys because you've had shows the last couple weeks. I've had pre-recorded interviews. But for me, it's been a little bit of a while. I've been on the road. I've been getting in touch with nature. Uh, I was in Utah climbing through all sorts of rocks, mountain biking around, uh, headed through parts of Colorado. And it was really nice to get a bit off the grid and to really just disconnect from things for a while. But, uh, you know, if you're going to disconnect at some point, you got to reconnect. And now I'm connecting myself back into the Liberty Matrix to bring you great shows like the ones you're going to hear today. And, uh, you know, it's not just me here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, of course. It's also great to be back catching up on the podcast from my fellow Lions of Liberty hosts, including Brian McWilliams, who hits you every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And if you didn't hear his interview with Owen Benjamin last week, my gosh, my gosh, please, please go click on that interview. And if you're a member of our Patreon, a member of the Lions of Liberty Pride, you got a really fun bonus segment with Owen Benjamin. So please do head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty to support us on there to get access to all of our bonus audio content. And of course, we also got my man, John Odermatt, wraps things up every single Friday with his hard hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday, and uh, to give him a plug as well for a great interview, uh, he just talked to Lynn Albrecht, the mother of Ross Albrecht, uh, about a week and a half or so ago, and uh, that is really an incredible story. Uh, the amount of injustice in the Ross Albrecht case is really, truly phenomenal, and uh, he is definitely something that deserves uh, the attention of libertarians. Uh, it's, it's a very, very compelling case, and Lynn is just a sweet, wonderful woman, so I do highly recommend checking that interview out, as well as all of John's uh, interviews about the broken criminal justice system. Please do check out all of our shows by clicking that subscribe button, whether you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or uh, if you're one of those people that just likes to listen on YouTube, hit subscribe there too. Do what you got to do to make sure you don't miss any of the great content coming at you here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Before we get into my interview today, I just want to remind you where you can find today's show notes. And this being the 363rd episode of the flagship original Lions of Liberty podcast, you can find today's show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 363. Let's get roaring, shall we? <laughs> All right, with me today, making his return to this program, is the founder of Donorcy, an incredible app that allows people to directly support charitable causes and see the results in real time. And uh, Lions of Liberty listeners even helped to build a house for a homeless woman in, in Malawi last year, and we'll talk about that in a bit as well. I am so pleased to welcome back the one and only Gret Glyer. Gret, are you ready to roar? 
Oh, yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Yeah, Gretton, I know I've been a big fan of your work ever since I first discovered the DonorSea app, and I know so many Lions of Liberty listeners uh, love using the app as well. People are always uh, sharing different projects. Uh, we asked, had one of our big supporters, one of our Patreon supporters, Clint Rankin, uh, develop this whole group called Walk the Walk, specifically for the purpose of gathering different libertarian podcasters and podcasters in general to support various causes uh, through DonorSea. So uh, for some people that might be new to the show that might somehow by now be uh, unfamiliar with your work. Why don't you do a quick little summary of uh, what exactly is DonorSea, how does it work, and how what differentiates it from your standard charitable organization? Gotcha. Well, I'll, I'll make my answer specific to the libertarian crowd since that's who I'm addressing today. So the general idea behind DonorSea is that it's a way for donors to see where their money goes when they donate through video documentation. So let's like, for example, when your listeners donated a house, by the way, I think they funded it in a matter of a few hours. I was, I was blown away by that. I was, I was blown away as, as well. Everyone really rallied around that. It was incredible. So that was a really cool thing. And what happened was uh, everyone who donated the house, they were able to get picture and video updates of the house as it was being built and then the complete house and they got to see the, the lady be moved into it. So everyone who donated got, got updates to their phone and to their emails showing with video documentation exactly what happened. Yeah, And she, she, she even specifically thanked uh, Lions of Liberty listeners. So you get a very personal connection with the people that you're helping as opposed to when you send your money to some of the uh, major charitable organizations out there, You j- all you know is that you sent them money basically you don't know anything else about who who actually got help by it exactly yeah so that is one of the main differentiators is it's really hard like if you donate 25 dollars to a, a brand name charity of some kind uh probably like good work is happening with that but at the same time you have no idea how that 25 dollars is being applied um in general it's like really hard to, to, to trace that money with donor c it's very easy you, you you give money to specific things and then you get feedback on on those specific things how does the overhead of of supporting donor causes work as compared to those major charitable organizations what kind of numbers have you been able to sort of sort out in the last couple of years about how sort of i guess efficiently the money that gets sent through donor is used compared to those major organizations Right. So we compare ourselves both to major organizations and then we compare ourselves to, to people who are like doing just regular crowdfunding. So major organizations, a lot of times they're in the 10 to 20% range in terms of how much they're taking, or sometimes it's way steeper, unfortunately, 40 to 60%. But let's be, let's be, let's just say, uh, around 15% is kind of normal for, for a, a big charity. And then you have folks like GoFundMe and, uh, Kickstarter and they're taking about five percent per per transaction, and then we've got uh, we've got DonorSe, which uh, on average it's a fluctuating amount depending on like what form of payment they use and stuff. But on average, uh, the percentage that we take per transaction is three point seven five percent. So a really large amount of your money is going to help the actual people in need, and the money that, that those razor thin margins that we take um, that goes to helping us build the app and the website and helping us keep everyone accountable. One question I get a lot uh, from people about the DonorSea app is, you know, are these donations tax, de- tax deductible? I know that they're not. Can you explain why that is, why the organization is set up in a, in a sort of a different way and why that actually benefits uh, your ability to uh, sort of help people out there? Absolutely. So I think that that's a fair question that people ask. Um, I actually started a tax deductible 501c3 organization back when I was uh, in back when I lived in Malawi, Africa, where I lived for three years. And the or, the idea behind that organization was to build houses for orphans and widows. One of the things I noticed was as 
we grew, the regulations to keep us, to keep our tax deduction status kept getting steeper and steeper and steeper. And so if we were to grow really large, we would be put into a situation where we'd be forced to spend lots of money on accountants and lawyers and less money going to the poor. And so by keeping ourselves non-tax deductible, the money is able to travel faster and more efficiently to those who are in, in need. You would effectively be forced to become more like those large organizations, those much less efficient organizations, which really runs counter to the whole reason that donors see exists in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. And there is, this, there might be a possibility someday where we could offer a type of tax deduction through organizations that we partner with, but that's just not a priority for, for us. Right now, the priority is building the relationships between the donors and the recipients. And when, and we might at some, at, at some point be able to do something like that. Um, but again, we, we want to make sure that we're focusing on helping people as opposed to being really good at filling out paperwork. Uh, you guys also uh, launched uh, an investment opportunity uh, with DonorC earlier this year. I know through the WeFunder website. Can you give an update on that? And um, also, you know, how people can actually invest in DonorC if they really are that passionate about what you guys are doing. Absolutely. So we have a, so WeFunder is a website that's kind of like Kickstarter, but for startups. So the way that WeFunder works is people invest certain amounts of money. And in ex- usually on like Kickstarter, you would get an album or something like that. On WeFunder, you get equity in a company. So because we're set up as an LLC, we're able to offer an equity stake in our company to those who invest. And then the idea is some, sometime down the line, maybe we'll sell donors to a larger organization. Maybe donors will have a public exit of some kind. Then you would financially benefit uh, if, if something like that were happen. But it's also a way to just support the mission of what we're doing. If you believe in supporting chair, if you believe in sending funds directly to people, if you like the decentralized model that we use, that's a, this is a great way that you can support us because all of this money, none of this, I, I take a salary of $0 a year. Um, my team is paid and, and, and we make sure that they get paid and, and they're paid fairly and so forth, but I don't take anything out of it. I just support myself through Patreon. And, um, and so if you're mission minded and you want to help the organization through these efforts, all of that money is going to optimizing our platform and helping us get the word out. Well, Grant, I got to ask then, um, I, I mean, I also take a $0 salary per year from Lions of Liberty, but I have a full-time job as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So how do you do it? How do you live uh, putting so much time <laughs> and effort into this organization without taking a dime from it? Yeah, the way I do it is, well, so I have a Patreon, so people can go to patreon.com slash liar, and that's really the idea behind how I'm going to support myself. I'm not fully funded yet, but I, I'm actually farther along. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be as far along as I am in terms of how much uh, I've been funding, and I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to raise a little bit more in that regards. And, um, and the reason that we do it that way is just so what I'm, how I'm personally and financially benefiting from this is completely out in the open. Like, I want people to see, like, we, we don't hide any of the Patreon numbers like, like you're allowed to do, like, Everything is fully out there so people can see exactly how I'm benefiting from running this platform. And I put in way more hours than I, you know, than I financially benefit, but I'm happy to do it. I, I love doing this. Like every day I get to see people's lives being changed on this platform and that's quite a reward in and of itself. It really is sort of a model of um, individual voluntary chatter- charity, not just the way DonorC works, but also the way you maintain income. Uh, you exactly. don't take it from DonorC. You say, if you like the work I'm doing here, please voluntarily decide to support me, Greg Lyre, so I can continue to do that kind of work. It's really a, a shining example for uh, the voluntary society that so many libertarians advocate for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, th- and that's the idea. Is is it the 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 idea of having me be supported through Patreon was a very natural fit with how we're already running things. So yeah, it really made a lot of sense. Now, Grant, uh, I brought you back on today because you wanted to. Uh, you were looking for some podcasts to go on because you really wanted to talk about the subject of wealth inequality. And uh, as I was telling you before the show, I, I went into this 
intentionally blind. I didn't want, I tried to avoid any other videos or writing you had done about this subject because I just wanted to go in with a clean slate because I know that you're going to have a unique view on the subject either way. And, and I would say uh, in general, when you talk to people, at least uh, a lot of the people I run into out here in California, most people have a very um, generic view of wealth inequality. Um, something along the lines of, you know, greedy capitalists basically hoard wealth and, um, and that's why so many people are poor. And that's why we have the 1% and then we have basically everybody else. And obviously mm-hmm. the everybody else is, is a different in perspective depending on where you live. Uh, the poor here in America are doing much better than the poor in Malawi or even the wealthy in, in Malawi. So it's all very relative. Uh, but like I said, I'm going with a clean slate. So uh, what is your view on wealth inequality as, as I guess as, as in a relation to how, uh, how it may differentiate from that standard view I sort of laid out that so many seem to hold? Sure. Yeah. So I just to put everyone's uh, initial concerns to rest, um, I, I don't think w- w- if people say that wealth inequality is getting worse, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Right. A lot of times, especially if from kind of the the Oxfam crowd, the, the folks who are, who are well, I'll put it this way. A lot of times, people, like you said, people are saying that uh, wealth inequality is at an all time high and therefore that's bad. Like the worst that wealth inequality is, the worse that the worse off people are. I don't agree with that. Obviously, like on, on every empirical level, the world is getting so much better in so many different ways. And the level of wealth inequality, like, sure, like the richest people are way richer than the poorest people, like never before. But also the poorest people are wealthier than the previous poorest people like never before. Um, and so I, I don't think wealth inequality in and of itself, it's just, it's too vague of a subject in and of itself. It's not a bad thing. One of the things that I, I do think needs more attention and, and I've been grateful that the libertarian community seems to acknowledge this and has come around this. Um, and, and this is the reason what, one of the reasons I'm going on these different podcasts is because I started my own podcast just a couple months ago and I'm talking about these subjects all the time. Like the entire, uh, reason behind the podcast and behind donorcy and behind working with, uh, the libertarian community is because I think that one of the things that's under discussed in our society in general is global poverty. I think that, that sure, wealth inequality might not be a bad thing in and of itself, but I also think there's a, a steep level of ignorance about just the level of poverty in the world. And I'm hoping to start a conversation about that. So why is there so much poverty in the world? What differentiates, say, a, a country like the United States? Like we said, we're even the poorest people. You know, I walk around Los Angeles and see uh, a lot of homeless people that are, are poor, but you know, a lot of them have bicycles and cell phones and, you know, are probably doing better than a lot of the people who are just working full-time jobs in a, in a or the equivalent of maybe a full-time job uh, in a country like Malawi. What are the conditions that um, create sort of poverty in a country as a, compared to somewhere like the United States? Right. So poverty is just the norm all across the board. Like the normal thing is that people are poor and they have been poor for a really long time. And I, and when I say poor, you might have this idea of someone who's living in a, in an inner city situation and, and they maybe don't have as nice of stores around them, or they don't have like a nice CVS that they can go to or whatever, but they still have lots of amenities. Um, but, but when I'm talking about, about the level of poverty that both exists in our world right now and that has existed for a long time, I'm referring to people who live on a dollar a day or maybe two dollars a day. People who, who, if they had a twenty dollar expense, they couldn't afford it. I, I, at, when I was living in Malawi, which um, has been ranked as the poorest country in the world most frequently in the last five years, um, I found out that there were situations where people couldn't afford a $20 hospital bill. Like they couldn't afford the $20 it took to go to the hospital. And so they just continue to suffer. Like that was just their reality. And so the, 
as like what you were asking, what are the conditions that create wealth versus, versus poverty? Um, I think that there are several things. I think one of the things that is undeniable is that capitalism has done more to lift people out of poverty than anything else by far. Um, and there are, and, and then the question becomes, okay, well now we have, now we're in a wealthy situation. Now we're creating more wealth. And then what do we do from here? But as a, as a framework, as a, as a starter, capitalism is a, is a huge way to help the poor. And capitalism, that word can often be seen as a dirty word, especially uh, by a lot of the people who uh, are often raising the red flag about uh, wealth inequality or global poverty, even and that sort of thing. Uh, can you explain, I guess, like how would you approach people that say aren't libertarians, I, I guess, on this subject, uh, people that are very skeptical of the idea of, of capitalism that really associate it more with what uh, you and I might call crony capitalism with the state sort of helping corporations to uh, sort of corner the market in certain areas. Uh, how would you describe to someone of that worldview, uh, why capitalism, real capitalism, or what we might call real capitalism uh, from the libertarian's perspective, how that actually helps poor people and creates more wealth. Right. So I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of tricky defining terms in, with what we're doing, right? So when, when people hear the word capitalism, a lot of times it immediately trigger, triggers this idea of greediness, like someone who's capitalistic supposedly wants a bunch of money for themselves, really. They picture uh, and, the Monopoly man with his monocle just plotting how to, uh, how to go <laughs> real estate. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that there's, the thing is that that's a powerful, that that sticks with certain people's in certain people's minds because there are greedy people out there and they do abuse systems and they do take advantage of people and that's just there's no denying it. Um, but but the the true type of capitalism that we're when we when you and I talk about capitalism the way that I would define it is basically people who are the best at serving other people. So if you are if you create the best cell phone that people love and and it, and it makes it easier for them to connect with their friends and stay in touch with their family you're basically serving a lot of people and the reward for that, and you're rewarded through a capitalistic system with wealth. And that is something that's very beneficial in society. Um, and like I said, I think that we should, and especially as libertarians and, and libertarians are really good at this. I think we should have a conversation about, okay, now we're in this like wealthy society. We've built it. We're continuing to build wealth. What do we do from here? But, but as a, as a framework, it, it is very important that people understand that the way if we're going to see wealth expand in these more impoverished countries, one of the most foundational blocks is that they're able to help themselves through business and entrepreneurship and free markets and capitalism. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow Podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, Liberty Rockers, this is Johnny Rocket from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Each week, I strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, economists, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check it out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com or find us on iTunes. Each show is action-packed, explicit, and a lot of fun. So join me at Johnny Rocket Launchpad. Launchpad.com every week for the newest episode. Keep liberty alive and rock and roll.
you know, a lot of people that are concerned with the subject of inequality, especially in the United States. You know, we saw uh, the Bernie Sanders movement in 2016 um, attempting to address a lot of these concerns, specifically here in the United States. How would some of these proposals that you hear, uh, just just to give some extreme examples, affect people in very, very, very poor countries like Malawi? I mean, let's say if uh, somebody came in and decided, well, you know, people in Malawi are very poor. Clearly, they need to make more money. Why don't we just institute a great minimum wage in Malawi? What would happen if, say, the $15 minimum wage was instituted in a country like Malawi? Yeah, and so many, I mean, so many of these examples are exposed simply by comparing them to countries like Malawi. So the, the, the minimum wage is a good example. Another one would be universal health care, right? So there's this idea that everyone has a right to health care. And I wish everyone could have free health care. I think that that'd be a wonderful thing. Um, but at the same time, like, let me, let me ask you this. Like, let's say what, like the people who are living in the States on, on average make about uh, $56,000 a year. In order to be in the global 1%, the top 1% richest people on the entire planet, you have to make $34,000 a year. So just, just by being an average American, you're about $20,000 richer than the baseline for being in the 1% of the entire planet. So if, if you're someone who is petitioning for universal health care and you're saying we need to have universal health care, it's a, it's a right. Um, my question is, why doesn't that right apply to the entire planet? And if, if it does apply to the entire planet, there are people who have like far less than your basic needs right now. Like, why don't we take 90% of everyone's income in the U.S. and give it to people who have no clean water? And and that discussion gets shut down very quick because there's absolutely no answer to it. You, you, there's no way to, to to fire back at that. So anyways, I, I think one of the, the, the best ways that we can fight some of the, uh, one of the best ways that we can uh, articulate our position against people who are who are proposing some of these agendas is by is by talking about global poverty and places like Malawi. What are the political? I mean, we keep going back to Malawi because I know you you lived there for several years. Uh, it doesn't need to be specifically about Malawi, but what are the conditions that that keep a lot of these countries from becoming more capitalist, uh, from having the same conditions that have developed here in the United States, despite all the problems, despite all the cronyism? We still have you know much more freedom to be sort of capitalist here than many other places in the world. So, uh, what exactly can can you get more specific about what the conditions are in countries such as Malawi, other poorer African countries that just can't seem people just can't seem to get their feet off the ground because of the conditions there. Right. So one of the things I think would be nice if it, if it were able to happen more often is, is if, if we could you know, have Malawians kind of speak for themselves. But since I'm here, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, Malawi is, is set up as a democracy. Um, if you ask the local people there uh, how how good of a job they do as a democracy. Most of them will tell you it's, they do an abysmal job. And a big reason for that is through corruption. Um, and, and also through things like steep taxes and taxes and stuff. But I think the corruption is one of the main, main hindrances. So there are a lot of people who, um, there are a lot of politicians in, in Malawi. And this, there was a, a scandal that came out in 2013 called Cashgate, where basically uh, the local authorities were pocketing billions of kwacha, the local currency, kwacha that was supposed to go to uh, hospitals and to people in rural villages who were about to enter the hungry season. And so people starved to death and people didn't get medicine because local officials were, were pocketing money. And so that's, I mean, that's the worst of the worst, but at the same time, that's not that uncommon in some of these, some of these contexts. So there's technically a democracy set up, um, but they also 
they also have a 50% tax rate on all cars that come into the country. So if you want to buy a $4,000 car, it's going to cost you 6,000 and the government gets two of that. I mean, there are lots of incentives that prevent wealth from flowing into the country and, and from, and that prevent the, the, the local people there from bringing themselves out of, out of poverty. What are some of the real solutions that we could actually propose and, and int- implement in a lot of these countries? As you said, maybe inequality isn't a, a big deal if everyone is getting more wealthy along the way, but how do we address these countries that where there is just so much poverty, obviously on the individual level, um, donor C and other other people that you know, go to these countries to help people. That that's a great thing on the on the sort of the micro scale. But how can we actually implement changes on the macro level to see some of these countries have the opportunity to really develop in a way the United States did over the last couple hundred years? Uh, how can people across the world get the chance to experience the real wealth of, of capitalism, of true capitalism, and uh, get be in a position to really help themselves and their fellow uh, you know fellow countrymen, fellow villagers, what have you. I'm glad you asked that question because a lot of times the conversation stops at, well, it's, you know, it's really tough and, and there's corruption and well, let's just throw up our hands and not do anything. And by asking that question, you're taking the conversation where it naturally should go, which is, okay, well, what do we do? Like we're in this position to help where there are people who uh, could, could use some help. How do we actually take care of that? Um, so I'll give you a, a general example and I'll, sorry, I'll give you a grassroots example and then I'll give you a more systematic example. Um, the grassroots example, I tell people as, as much as I can, there's a lady on the donor seat platform who you're probably familiar with named Amy Hathaway. Yep. I Amy get has emails some, from her constantly. Yeah. She has some of, of the projects most, go through her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, she's, she's one of our top storytellers. Uh, those are the people who are posting projects on donor seat. And one of the things that we, uh, that, that Amy does is first she saves these babies' lives who are suffering from malnutrition. A lot of times they're on the brink of starvation and she provides them with formula milk. And uh, unfortunately, these babies often come from, they're, they're orphans. They're, they're, their parents died or their father ran off or something like that. And so the baby's just in a very vulnerable position. And what's tough about that is that once the baby's life is saved, we need to do something with the baby. And so what Amy Hathaway does is she sets the baby's caretaker up, the aunt or whoever it is, with a, with a business. And then people can fund the startup expenses for that business. It's often like 300 bucks or something like that to start up an aunt with a, with a business. Once the business is up and running, um, the aunt is then able to provide formula milk and, and raise the kid on her own and even grow her own uh, level of income as time goes on. And then what's crazy is she has an 80% success rate. So for every business that's set up by Amy Hathaway, uh, four out of five of them are successful, which is crazy for a country like Tanzania. That's crazy that she is able to, to, to do that with. Obviously, it's crazy for a country like the United States. I mean, that's is. an incredibly <laughs> yeah, high success rate for a business anywhere. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, and I believe in the, in the U.S. it's something like one in one in ten businesses succeed or don't die in the first five years or something right. like that. For her, she tracks everything, and four to five of the businesses are very successful. For the people who aren't successful, she sticks with them. She helps them out a second time. But still, it's like an incredibly uh, she's doing incredibly impressive work. Okay. So that's a, that's a grassroots thing that's going can, on. Can we uh, dig into that a little more? I mean, what, what do you, what are some of the reasons that she is able to have such a high success rate with setting people up who, you know, I guess compared to what you might call an education in the United States are probably very uneducated in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. and so how are they able to achieve such success through a, a very small amount of seed money to run a business and continue it running? Uh, like you said, at a much higher rate than even many first world countries. Yeah, so there's there's a few reasons behind that. One of them is they're highly incentivized for it to be successful because uh, they really don't have the income. Right. Uh, 
two is, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of studies on this, but for whatever reason, she mostly works through women who are starting these businesses. And for whatever reason, it just seems like women are really good at, at uh, whatever it is that, that creates that, that, uh, that gets these things up and up and running. Like there's a lot of accounting and keeping track of things and being diligent and for whatever it is, for, for whatever reason, they're, they're very qualified and, and they do a good job with that. Um, and I also think this is probably the most crucial thing. Um, a lot of times people think that there's a lot of bad press about charity out there. There's one helping her. It's poverty Inc. toxic charity. I mean, like the list goes on about people who have, who have written and, and, and made negative things about charity and, and fair enough. There's like a lot of bad stuff that's happening out there. What, what doesn't get coverage as much is, is all of the good stuff that's going on. And one of the ways that, that good things tend to happen, like Amy Hathaway's uh, business uh, setups that she does is, is she is able, she, understands the Tanzanian context and she works with people in Tanzania, like local people who grew up and live in Tanzania so that she can execute on the funds and help get the businesses set up. So she's working with people who really understand the culture, really understand the possible pitfalls and really understand the ways to be successful. And then she just replicates it. Um, and so I think that's the biggest key is having these on the ground people who, who really understand the context and are able to execute well. Right. She's not just shooting over a few hundred bucks from, from halfway across the world and saying, all right, go, go in there and, and start a business. Yeah, have at it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's what happens most, most often. That's what is most often happening when people are, when you're hearing about these bad charities is people are, are just kind of parachuting money in and hoping something good happens from it. And it never does. Great. All right. Yeah. So go ahead and you know, give us that other example you, you wanted to mention. Yeah. Oh, this, okay. So yeah, that was the grassroots level. That's something that people like individual people can do. And it's a huge help to individual people's lives on a more systematic level. Um, I, there's lots of opportunities to promote education in, in these different contexts. And again, like for whatever reason, it seems, it seems like educating women creates this, this like massive, because what happens when you educate a man is he gets educated and that's it. It just stops there. When you educate a woman, <laughs> supposedly in these contexts, according to the data, when you educate a woman, they learn the information and then they pass it on to their sisters and their moms and and their, their kids. They, it keeps, it keeps going and it keeps going. Um, and so I think that education and, and then specifically girls education seems to be a great way to, um, to bring an entire country up. So that really changes the culture then if women are passing these lessons along uh, to their children and their family and their fellow villagers and that sort of thing. Uh, that, that seems like what ultimately what this is all about. Obviously, helping families, helping people on the small scale is great. Uh, but at the end of the day, ultimately, you want these cultures to really change uh, so people know that they can help um, themselves. Uh, another thing I want to ask is like, how do the governments of these countries respond? Um, like you discussed, they're uh, very corrupt. These aren't really capitalist countries in, in any sense of the word. Do you guys get any resistance to uh, going in and helping people in this way? I mean, do, do they say some of the politicians in these places who, who have so much control over the economy, do they feel threatened at all when, you know, these, these guys just from halfway across the world can just roll in and, and help people like that? Whereas they're probably making pr- all sorts of promises out there that they really never deliver on. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's important to remember in, in these contexts is, is they have, they actually have a much their the government reach in these countries is actually much smaller than in a country like America, right? We've got cops walking up and down the street. We've got an air force and Navy and all this stuff in, in a place like Malawi or Tanzania or, or one of these places. Uh, the government is just really small and it's like always broke. And, and then the, the, the money that's supposed to go to running the government is often being pocketed by the government officials. And so there's, there's not like people patrolling the streets like there would be in a more affluent place like, like ourselves. So in a, in a lot of cases, people are just are, are being left alone. Uh, and, and, and so we're, we're able to do good work, but also in a lot of cases, uh, like 
you know, one of the things that the libertarians talk about is there is, you do need private property to be protected. And so, so because the government isn't as influential, they're not able to protect private property and things like that. And, and that's just too bad. So there's other ways that, uh, that people get policed. Um, there's, there's more of like a mob rule that happens and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it's just a totally different context. So there's not much of a, a true justice system there in that sense where if, if someone acquires property, there's not much of a legal channel to really protect it as much uh, as there might be in, in a place like the United States. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. The court system, I mean, hiring a lawyer, all that stuff, it would, it would just be foreign to them. Even um, I mean, there, when I was in Malawi, there was there were a lot of people who unfortunately they got accused of a crime um, and they were they were just sitting in jail. They weren't able to defend themselves or. Uh, have a, a, a prop, have, have proper due process. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the government is, is both really small and really inefficient and, and doing the, the, the few jobs that it's supposed to do, like having a justice system, like pr- protecting private property, the, um, it's, uh, encouraging the sovereignty of the individual, those few jobs, it's, it's not even doing that. And so I think one, that's another thing where if we could encourage governments to care about some of those values more, I think that would be a, a big help, but it's tough. I want to go back and just kind of readdress one of these examples you brought up a little bit earlier about minimum wage. Now, obviously, you know, say a $15 minimum wage in, in a country like Malawi, where people are might be making a dollar or two a day sometimes, would mm-hmm. seem ridiculous. But even on a smaller scale, I mean, just to kind of illustrate the point here, and obviously a principle and a, a, a strain of logic is going to apply in the same way in, in any situation. But what would happen if even, say, a $2 an hour minimum wage were, were instituted in, in a country like that to somebody like us? That might seem reasonable. I mean, everyone should be able to make at least two bucks an hour to get by. But what would happen if even something like that was implemented lented in, a, in an economy like that? Yeah. So, I mean, and often it is implemented. Those kinds of things are implemented thanks to Western influences. So like, especially uh, factories in China, um, they do have certain minimum requirements that they're required to do that. And, and that's through often through social pressure because uh, like Nike won't do it because they'll get in big trouble if, if it's found out right. that they're not, not hiring their workers, or whatever. And um, what happens is that people don't get jobs and they move their, they, they go elsewhere. They go like, they go wherever they can to get the, the work done for the cheapest amount. And the people who don't get jobs, they end up in, you know, in a really bad situation. I mean, like, I don't know how else to say it. Like they, a lot of times they, they get sick. They have no way of taking care of themselves. They are not able to buy enough food for themselves uh, the, the the number yeah it's uh, there's a lot of really really negative consequences to impl- implementing these policies when you don't understand the context um and so yeah i mean like a two dollar minimum wage in malawi would be catastrophic it would be it would like people would not be able to get jobs right because to to justify a two dollar you know an hour wage to somebody they have to be creating at least that much wealth uh for you know for the person hiring them and that's just not realistic in a place like that so all that's going to happen there is the jobs simply won't exist like you said when the jobs don't exist for in a place like that, the only other options to having those jobs are, you know, just having nothing, you know, being poor, yeah. um, not mm-hmm. eating a certain day or, you know, doing something terrible, having to sell, you know, go, you know, send a pro- child into prostitution or, you know, just having to do whatever it takes to survive, which, like you said, are often very, very horrible things, things that are much worse than working for a, a lower than, you know, would seem reasonable to us wage. Mm-hmm. And no one is forcing anyone to work these wages there. I mean, people are, are usually clamoring to work for them. I mean, like they really, really, really want to work for them. I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm happy to share this. When I lived in Malawi, we had a guy who we hired to come and clean our house every day. And he was like a full-time worker for us. And uh, my household paid him a, a little over a hundred dollars per month. And for us, that was like, 
I feel bad paying him so little, right? But for him, he was making three times more than the average person around him. Like he was a well, like he would consider himself a wealthy person. He had a nice, compared to his neighbors, he had a nice house and so forth. And if someone, someone who heard about that was outraged and they said, oh my gosh, uh, that household is only paying this guy $100 a month. Like they need to at least pay him this much. It's like, well, we can't afford that. Like we're just like these, we're, we're these like poor aid workers. We're, right. we're hiring this guy because it's like convenient and, and, and it makes sense. But we wouldn't hire someone if it was like five times as expensive or whatever it is that people think we should do. Yeah, if you were forced to pay $500 a month for a cleaner, you just wouldn't have a cleaner and he wouldn't have a job. Exactly. And, and then he will be one of his poor neighbors, which he had many of. And I actually have, I, I went to his house one time and I, I made a video about it and you can see the difference between his house and everyone else's houses. So yeah, I mean, people, uh, I, one of the, one of the reasons I I'm excited to have these conversations, conversations about global poverty um, through here and my podcast and other, other places I've been is because I, I think that people are not being helped because they're simply, they simply don't understand the realities of how these things work. And so the more that we can, uh, we can get the reality out, the better. All right, great. Well, I know that is, uh, that is your mission out there in the world is to get the reality about these situations out there. Uh, you're constantly putting out content, uh, whether it's YouTube videos. I know you have your podcast now. And of course, uh, you're setting a, a shining example through the Donor C app. I know there's a lot to plug, but I want to make sure <laughs> you get a chance to plug everything. So please let everybody out there know how they can not only uh, check out Donor C if they haven't already, um, but also how they can possibly invest through WeFunder. And of course, feel free to promote uh, your YouTube channel, your new podcast, the whole deal. Take it away. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, on my, I'll say one of the places you can start is you can go to the Greg Lyer podcast. That's on iTunes spot. Like it's everywhere. And, um, if, if you want to subscribe to that, that would be super helpful. I do a lot of talking about global poverty, wealth and equality, all of that stuff. Um, so I'd love to have you there. Also donorsy.com is a great place to start. If you want to get started with donorsy, um, you can start giving to any project and it's, it's like you could give a, a dollar to a project and still get a video update. So it doesn't matter how much you give. Uh, but it's a great place to kind of like get exposure to what else is going on in the world. And then if you want to, if you are in a position to invest in us, there's, there's a, a minimum investment, um, that's not unsubstantial. And so, but if you're in, in a place to invest in us, I would love to have you. And so you can go to wefunder.com slash donor C. All right. The great Gret Glyer, always doing amazing work out there. Gret, I know we'll be uh, talking again in the future. I wish you all of the best of luck at everything you're doing. So keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. I look forward to it. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Gret. All right, Liberty Kitty Cats, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the great Gret Glyer. Again, you got to check out the DonorC app if you have not already. And of course, as I mentioned briefly uh, at the beginning of the interview, you've got to check out the work of our Patreon supporter, longtime member of the Pride, Clint Rankin. Be sure to find the Walk the Walk Facebook group. You can also check out walkthewalktofreedom.com. Clint is always promoting different projects uh, through DonorC and, and various other uh, voluntary charitable organizations to try to rally libertarian podcasters and their fans to support different causes. So uh, really doing a lot of work and putting the voluntary philosophy of libertarianism into action, just like Clint Rankin is, just like Greg Glyer is. Love speaking to Greg. Love getting his perspective on things. He is someone who's out there not just uh, talking about the philosophy of libertarianism and the ideas of liberty, but implementing it, putting it into action, and truly making an amazing impact on the world. So please do consider checking out 
all of Gret's work, as well as consider tossing him a few ducats on his Patreon as well. Of course, if you toss us some ducats on our Patreon, you get access to all sorts of exclusive bonus audio content, including the regular Degenerate Gamblers podcast, the monthly or so Conspiracy Corner, and League of Liberty podcast that I do, of course, with my friends Johnny Adams of the Johnny Rocket Launchpad, uh, Roger Paxton of the Lava Flow, and Chris Spangle of We Are Libertarians. We form our monthly super group called the League of Liberty. We really had some great shows we've been banging out on that Patreon. And of course, uh, people that are in there at $10 or higher also get a video content uh, for a lot of our stuff that we do as well. So there's really so much content that we do, not just here three days a week with the three formatted shows and our bonus content on Patreon. But if all of that wasn't taking up enough of our time, we're also now doing our Candidates of Liberty show, which you can find on Tuesdays right now. All of this is found in that Lions of Liberty podcast feed. So again, be sure to hit that subscribe button no matter where you listen to that show and become part of the conversation. You can join our Lions of Liberty forum. That's our public Facebook group that anyone can join. Just come on in, answer a brief question about how you first found the show. You can just type Lions of Liberty forum in your little little search bar there on Facebook and it should pop right up for you. Now, something I want to mention that's coming very, very soon is the five year anniversary of the Lions of Liberty podcast. I started this dinky little thing on September 13th, 2013 by posting an interview with uh, Stefan Kinsella talking all about um, intellectual property. And uh, I can't I can't say it's my smoothest show of all time. I can't say the audio is amazing. I can't say I did an amazing job as an interviewer, but that's what's amazing about doing a podcast like this, starting from scratch, basically having no idea what I was really doing, is seeing that evolution. Now, I'm not going to necessarily encourage people to go back and listen to the first episode, but if you happen to, I think you will notice a stark contrast in in the podcast now as it was uh, back then. And we could not have done any of this without the support of all our listeners. If I still had 40 listeners like I think we did on the first podcast, I probably wouldn't be here right now five years later. So I want to thank each and every one of you for clicking on the show, for downloading the show, for sharing the show, and of course all of our wonderful members of the Lions of Liberty Pride who support us over on Patreon. You are all the lifeblood of this program. You are why we continue to pump out all of this content for you. So I just want to thank everybody out there who has supported us over the years. And uh, we are planning to have a big uh, anniversary show, and I plan to air it that day. Uh, We're still sorting out some of the details of exactly how it's going to work. We might try to do some sort of live stream, uh, but we will have a special bonus anniversary celebration, as well as uh, hopefully a a nice little discount for you like we like to do sometimes at the Lions of Liberty store. You can, of course, check out all of our merchandise, t-shirts, and posters over at lionsofliberty.store store. We have a lot of cool stuff over there. And of course, once again, don't forget to check out my compatriots, Brian McWilliams on Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And John Odermatt wrapping things up on Fridays with his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Fridays. And of course, right now for at least through November or so, Candidates of Liberty. It's been fun, kids. It's been real. Until next time, I've got just one message for you. And that is to live long and live free.